faia na mahi oraruhinga. Pursue the behaviour of raruhinga. Ena iwi o te motu, ena pari kārangaranga tēnei te mihi ki a tātou katoa, ko maraia rakuraku tōku ingoa. Welcome back folks, you're with Te Ahikā, Radio New Zealand's kaupapa Māori programme. What is the difference between kiri-tuhi, skin art, and tāmoko, Māori-designed whakapapa-based tattoo? Justine finds out when she talks with tāmoko practitioner Mark Kōpua. People today even understand that moko is more than just some pretty accessory, that it carries all their heritage and their and their genealogy and and it's um that that kind of like puts it a little bit more than just an art piece. Last year, Fulbright scholar Professor Cardinal Walters was in Aotearoa sharing the results with Māori of a study asking the question, does historical trauma and colonial violence encountered by Indigenous peoples make us sick? Tell me about your traditional relationship to food and food activity. What did that look like? What were your people's original instructions? And then you might hear the story about you know how the berries are picked and how the people harvested, and then you say... Well, at what point did that get interrupted? Tell me the story about that. Then you hear the story about how the community was removed and put into a place where they didn't have access to that anymore. And then they were given commodity foods for their diet that they had become dependent on. Otherwise, they started to starve. And then you hear the story that people did starve. And you say, well, what did you do to protect your babies? And they say, well, we gave them more food and we made sure they were plump. And then the light bulb goes off, right? It's no longer about an individual pathological condition. It becomes uh, understanding a health behavior that was born out of surviving a colonial trauma experience. Koira na kaupapa te ahikai te neira. There are a number of stories about how tāmoko came into being. This One day, Mataora, a chief of the upper world, was visited by young people from Raruhinga, the underworld. In the visitors' party was Niwareka, the daughter of the underworld chief, Uetunga. Mataora and Niwareka fell in love, got married, and lived happily together until one day a jealous Mataora became so angry with Niwareka, he hit her. Niwareka left and returned back to her people in the underworld. Regretting his actions, Mataora followed her, arriving at her father's house. There, Uetunga was practising tattooing, and agreed to tattoo Mataora, whose face was only painted. During the tattooing, Mataora sung of his sorrow for his actions towards his wife. Niwarika heard this, and they reunited. Having travelled to the underworld, Mataora needed permission to return home. It was granted. And when Mataora returned wearing tāmoko, it was a reminder of his actions, and so introduced the world of man to tāmoko. It seems you can't go anywhere these days without seeing some sportsman or celebrity wearing tattoo, or if they're Māori, tāmoko. I've got whānau and friends who have been obstructed from entering restaurants and bars because their tāmoko is viewed as gang insignia. And as you'll hear in this upcoming kōrero Justine did with Mark Kōpua and Johnny Brooking earlier this year, there's a difference between tāmoko, mainstream tattooing and kiri-tuhi, skin art. Justin Murray here for uh, Te and I'm here at the uh, Wellington Iwi Art Gallery. Now today for the for the art gallery they are hosting a, a, a tāmoko workshop and I'm here with um, Mark Kōpua. Kia ora, kia ora matua. Kia ora, kia ora koutou. Ko Mark Kōpua hau no, uh, no te aitanga hauiti, no ngātira, me ngāti parau o te tairāpiti. Well, um, obviously we are here at um, Iwi Art Gallery and you are a tāmoko artist. Right, that's right. Yeah. So so explain what what is tāmoko. We understand that it is um, a, an art form of, of Māori, Māori culture, but to you, what is tāmoko? Um, well, over many years of uh, having that question thrown at me, I've devised a... Um, 
the announcer that generic goes, one that you uh, use. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that um, basically says that 99.9% of moko is about your culture. It's about your your iwi, hapu, and whānau affiliations. Uh, it's about anything Māori language, um, the language, the the arts, the everything is. That's what moko is. It reflects all those things, and the 0.1% of it is about tattooing. So, to I think that that's probably one of the better answers that you'll mm. find as in terms of what moko is, because people today even understand that moko is more than just some pretty accessory that it carries all their heritage and their and their genealogy and and it's um that that kind of like puts it a little bit more than just an art piece in the words of one money of i wear my pride upon my skin pretty much that's pretty much it and um uh, yeah because it is your pride that's your that's your whanau your um your whole heritage is there worn on your skin out there for everybody to see. Mm. So, um, Mark, tell me a bit about, about you. Um, where did you grow up and how did you um, become involved with At First Carving and then on to Thamako? Um I was sort of like, I'm pretty lucky because I was re- I was brought up by my grandparents and, um, and so with that came um, listening to, they were old people, so I listened to old people talk. And, uh, of course, obviously, they were also number one language was Māori, so I also had the advantage of that. Plus, um, I was at the Marae a lot with them and all those sort of cultural activities that that sort of uh, generation did. I was fortunate enough to be exposed to it. I don't know whether I absorbed a lot of it, but I certainly was exposed to that. Um, I know that um, I had a a real leaning towards art. And uh, I started to get some tuition in, in, the, in carving when I was at high school, went to high school at Teote. And um, fortunately for me, I, that's where my career as an artist uh, uh, really kicked in. And um, I think the, once I um, had uh, done a certain number of houses uh, on my own, I had to... Uh, gathered enough information about symbolism and the design and things like that to then seriously start considering uh, shifting across to the skin as a medium as opposed to rock, stone, wood and all those other other materials. And one of the things actually that was a deciding factor for me was that in, in the carving world, in my carving world, I was tended to be dealing more with... Um, uh, carvers wanting to knock off at, at midday on Friday, um, uh, pay clerks not paying carvers, and uh, all that sort of uh, administrational stuff became the real burden on my job. And so yeah. I wasn't spending time with the material, with the timber and the pakapapa of a house that, that I that I thoroughly uh, enjoyed. And um, and so I decided that, that at that point that I would shift and. Um, and go right back, lose out on 25 years of um, of carving, and become a student again, and learn how to how to how to apply what I had learnt in all those years, but in, into the skin. So, um, oh, sorry. And I grew up in Tolaga Bay at a little community outside of Tolaga Bay called Mangatuna, and um, and Tokamara Bay. So Tolaga, Mangatuna, and Tokamara Bay. So. People will recognise Tokamara Bay as a place for song and um, haka and stuff like that. So I grew up in that kind of environment, and you 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 tend to understand that um, that when it comes to the arts, it, all the art forms are included. So it's not just carving and that's it. Because um, if you take a look at a at a performer, say like in the latest Matatini thing, if you have a look at a performer, they're wearing yes. pupus. Yep. So that's weaving. They're wearing a, a bodice at the top, so that's tainiko. Usually they're painted. Some of them nowadays, they're totally, they're moko. It's actually moko, so there's that art form involved. They're carrying a patu, they're wearing greenstone, they're wearing bone. They're all, so all the arts, and they're singing. They're singing Māori and they're doing haka. So all the arts are wrapped up into one whānau. It's not a separated, segregated affair. So... Luckily for me, with that sort of understanding, when I shifted over to to doing moko, uh, I just carried all those things over with me. All I really had to learn was um, how to apply the apply the how to put the ink into the skin. 
and um, and so I had to really discipline myself to become a student again and learn how to do that. And where did you learn, Mark? Um, a very, very good friend of mine, um, his cousin was a, was a tattooist, and his cousin was also selling gear, that, um, and so we made a deal that if I bought the gear off him, he would show me how to use it. Now, when you say the word tattooist, are you meaning a, a, a Pākehā tattooist? He was a, a Māori, but oh. he was doing all, all forms of tattoo. He okay. Was, yeah. Um, not just um, the, the moko side of thing was alien to him. And so there was also that as a trade-off that he would learn some things about certain symbolism and that, that stuff. So um, I learned from, from there initially and then I got involved with a whole bunch of um, uh, ex- uh, conventions, tattoo conventions that were happening in New Zealand. And through that I ran into a, um, uh, some really, really brilliant international tattooists who are very, really, really cultural orientated people, and so they were willing to share that knowledge about application uh, with me. And of course, I'm not forgetting too that I had some great, I have great colleagues like Rangi Skipper, uh, Derek Lardelli, all those guys as well. And we, we generally uh, love working together because we're able to share um, technique and, and all sorts, call it all and stuff with one another. And there's only really a handful of skilled tamoko artists in New Zealand. There's yourself, as you said, Rangi Kipa, Skipa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, I focus, and so does Rangi and Derek, and, and all the whole, all the other guys as well, uh, focusing on uh, bringing younger, younger artists through. Um, there's a lot of artists that are out there that, that are self-teaching themselves, mm-hmm. And um, we know for a fact that there, there's going to be problems with that when it, in terms of health and safety and those practices. And You mean sort of garage setups? Yeah, that, that it, sort of scratching setup, which we, that's what it's called in the industry, is scratching. So, scratching. Um, I guess one of the things is that we, you know, us guys sat down and just thought to ourselves, well, it's no good just moaning about it. This time we did, did some proactive stuff and actually started carrying apprenticeships and and offering it in the best possible way and it's not as if to say that we're capable of taking on 10 apprentices all at <laughs> once because we don't do enough work to do that so but if you do a three year with one one-on-one apprentice um, then we know that at least when that apprentice walks out of our the apprenticeship you've got a really solid uh, um, uh, artist and, a, and somebody who's culturally uh, has now been given a cultural background to, to be able to make a decision about what they do and they're in the art form and, and how they do it and how to deal with clients and how to keep things safe and and all that sort of stuff. I think for us, Rangi and Derek and myself and, and the others like uh, Laurie Gordon, uh, all, the, all, the, all of us uh, work a lot with um, some of the broader issues and... Um, and one of those things, of course, is the 0.1 percent, which is of, which is tattooing, which we, which we now under, uh, know is called kiritohi. Kiritohi, yes. Yeah, because <laughs> I know that some of our colleagues are not quite; uh, they disagree with the concept of kiritohi. But one of the things with kiritohi is that um, what we've discovered since we've uh, kind of introduced it is that what kiritohi is is like that 0.1 percent. It's all about the tattooing, so it has no it has no link to, to genealogy. Uh, it, is, uh, it can have the kopapa side of it for the recipient, but at large, the thing that we, you try to protect, which is your intellectual property, is the whakapapa. So, so, so the protection of the whakapapa and yet still being able to share the art form happens with kiritui. And one of the beautiful things that happens with that is that a lot of the non-Māori, Pākehā people who come and get kiritui, a lot of them that come to me actually understand that and they actually um, get a little bit of a buzz, not just because they can have some art, but because they're actually helping us protect our, protect our intellectual property. So that's, uh, 
that's one of the successful things about Kiritui. So is that, is that a respect thing, Mark? Some, like, say, a Pākehā boy who wants Kiritui comes to you or an apprentice mm-hmm. and wants a specific koru design. Um, they, they respect the fact that, OK, here it is, but it's not whakapapa yep. Most of them, they do. They understand that. Um, I mean, if you look on the net, there are so many Māori that are on the net telling non-Māori that can't be mokoko that you're wearing. And so, so with the global reach that the internet has, there's a lot of non-Māori out there that understand that what they got is not, mm. not moko. Like for example, Mark, when, when I googled um, Kiritsuhi the other day, I'm not too sure there was a, a guy who, who almost works with stencils, Kiritsuhi, and it's like you can order Kiritsuhi online or something really weird like that. Yeah, yeah, that's just... that's uh, that's kind of like part of the tattoo industry where you where we sell. Um, I I do that, but it, oh, but, okay. but what it, what happens is that when when it's us doing it, it means that we can ensure the safety of the for the recipient and the safety of of muko. Uh, if you get somebody who's not trained or doesn't understand how those things work, then you can't be sure that that the process is safe, mm. both for both parties. So. Um, so that's really why we do it. It's just to ensure that the safety level is is maintained. Mark, you have a a, a facial tamoko. Let's let's call it all about um, why you decided to get facial tamoko and what what was the because um, I went okay. So I went back to Tauranga Matatini and there was a um, a young tattoo oh, tamoko artist, Stu McDonald, who um, and and I have a tamoko on my shoulder and uh, Turu Makina Dooley's did that one and now he's got a facial tamoko, Stu McDonald's got a facial tamoko so I mean is there a trend happening with tamoko, the tamoko community to eventually get your face tamoko? Um, I think that um, that it would seem like there's a trend happening um, and, and I think really think that that, that perspective from modern perspective, is based upon the amount of exploitation that we've been exposed to in terms of our cultural symbols and that. So we come out with a with an attitude that that would tell us, oh, this is just a bit of a trend. But it would help to ask the wearer mm. what's actually going on. Um, and so I know that with the, the number of faces and chins that I've done, those people have gone through serious things in their lives. Um, they're looking, uh, not maybe not looking for direction, but they're looking for something to confirm or affirm the direction that they've taken. And um, to me, I think that a facial moko is one of the most extreme affirmations of what you are. I did to the marketer, so so um, so I knew that um, for some time. Um, Turumakina was on the right track. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like you just say, okay, yep, I'll yeah. do it. You you go through. Is there a process that you. There is a kind of a process. Um, <coughs> and it's just through a matter of me having a discussion with the with the person who wants to get Moko on their face, uh, with their family about their life and, and things like that. Mm. In terms of my, me making a decision about a person. And it's not as if to say I'm tattooing everybody. Because there are some people that I've actually said to them, perhaps you need to go back and re- reassess your life, and um, and make some make some serious. And decisions. they're not upset by you saying that. I, no, I think they respect me enough to understand that I'm not saying no. I'm saying you need to improve. Um, that kind of thing. The only other thing that's uh, is that. Um, a lot of the moko that, that I try to do is a progressive thing, especially facials. And it's not, like, it's progressive, it's about your life. So if you're, like, if you're going to live to 60-year-old and you're only 20, then I can't put 60 years on you, I can only put 20 years on you because you have yet to live the other... So a rangatahi who's, I don't know, just turned 21, wants a bit of a birthday gift, comes for tāmoko, <laughs> you, you would just base the design on that person's life? On that, on the life so far, yeah. And uh, they will only get that amount of life, um, their life experiences. They, they can't, you know, I, there's, there's tohu on there that, that I use for if, if a person was a member, which is a life member of the runanga in the old traditional way, 
um, there are tohu there. So I, I can't mistakenly put a tohu for that on somebody who's never going to go anywhere near Runanga. You know what I mean? Aye, yep. So when they get there, they get the tohu for it. Mm. So it's not a, it's not a, it's it's quite a process. It's not a, it's not a slap happy yeah. um, kind of thing. And we still after like twenty, nearly twenty five years of truck, you know, doing this. We still get criticised for um, being too slap happy and uh, stuff like that, and uh, so so we're not. Um, it's not as though we're invisible from the critical eye. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. We're just as visible as some of the facial moko that we do. So so we because we know that we, we're very very careful, and we make sure that the processes are adhered to, or we just sort of manipulate people towards the right in the right direction so that things are done properly. Mm. Um, in the eyes of our Māori community. Kia ora, Mark. Does every Māori, in your opinion, deserve to wear tāmoko? When you, when you see the TV and there's a gang member or a mongrel mob member or a black power member that has facial tāmoko, how do you feel when you see those images? Um, I actually asked myself a question. Um, how did that person get to that? Um, I can't be immediately judgmental about about them because just the other day a very very a cousin of mine passed away who was the boss of the, of the gang up in Gisborne because I got to remember that a lot of those boys in there they're my relations as relations they're fabulous they're fabulous guys but in that in that world that they go to they're a different person um, so I'm kind of divided yeah. in terms of, of uh, how to judge them and I try not to judge them until I get to, you know, know them to and, know the person. and that situation, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I know it's, it's kind of like visually shocking to see someone with a moko, facial moko wearing a gang patch. You know, that's kind of, I don't know, it's, whether it's a contradiction. I don't know whether it's a contradiction, uh, certainly against Māori life. Um it's hard to say yeah, hard I'm, to say, I'm isn't it? To, how am I going to deal with that that kind of thing. I do know that a lot of the gang members that I know from up the the Taitai Fiti at least and some of them others around the country have got have got have got a lot of respect for me and what I do. And so and I respect them for that because they're not putting any unnecessary pressure on me, like I don't put any unnecessary judgment on them. Um so, so I do know at least that 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 uh, that, that exists. I'm lucky, I guess, because um, that exists that they they have a, enough respect for me and what I do to not uh, come and put that kind of pressure on me. Yes, yeah, yes, choice. Here. Okay, here we are at the art gallery, and Mark is going to uh, show me around the different equipment that they use. Uh, in this setup here, we're just using an ordinary power pack. Uh, that has a foot pedal connected to it's just a sort of like general mainstream tattoo equipment and those are, we use three machines that are normally set up for a heavy liner uh, for the outline a small liner for inlining and decorating and a shader for putting some some sort of 3D tones and stuff into it um, You do yeah. colours or is it just black? Um, I've only just started going back into colour so uh, Yes, we do do colours now. I don't. Uh, I'm not a strong supporter for colour because it's um, black is a very, very natural ink, mm-hmm. uh, and but um, colours got additives to it that can cause problems for various people. Oh, neat! So they have to be quite um, aware that colour can do that. Can you introduce me to your apprentices? This here is Johnny Brooking. Kia ora, Johnny. Kia ora. And Johnny Brooking has just finished three years' apprenticeship. She's now independently working. And her brother, her younger brother, I also taught him as well. So so he's he's been at it for now, how long? Seven years? Seven, yeah. Coming up eight. Yeah. So is it a, is it a growing trend? Or I shouldn't really use trend that, that wahine Māori are getting into tamako? Um, actually, it's an old tradition. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, um, it's not a, a new thing that women are doing moko. Uh, it's been around for some, a number of years, even in, say, the last, I don't know, six, seven generations, there have been women doing moko. I think it's more the um, 
colonization that has made us think that it's only for the men. So, yeah. so um, it's just really rehashing an old tradition. Um, kia ora ko Johnny Brookin toku ingoa ki te taho toku papa uh, no Ngāti Parau ko te whānau atu whakairora te hapu ko Ngāti Parau te iwi ki te taho toku mama uh, no rongo whakāta ka hungunu me tūwharetoa. So um, what made you want to get into tāmoko? Um, I, I, used, I do, used to do a lot of art, like just painting, and I've been around it since um, Uncle Mark started doing tāmoko, so there's always been an interest and all that. And um, I just wanted a career change, yeah. A career change from? Uh, I used to be a kayako at a kohangareo, so teaching. Oh, kapai. Yeah. So you were still in, in, in te ao Māori, so to speak, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and how have you found that three-year journey as an apprentice? It's Oh, it's been awesome, yeah. Um, it's had its ups and downs sort of thing, because it's quite demanding of your time. And, um, yeah, you just got to commit yourself, because it's, especially if it's something that you want to do as a career... But I guess if you've got the passion for all things from Te Ao Māori, well, it just comes with ease. Now, um, I didn't know this, but Mark pointed out that it's um, a traditional mairano for wahine Māori to do tāmoko. Do you find yourself having to prove yourself um, in this industry than your Māori male um, colleagues? Um, yeah, sometimes it's, yeah, it's a challenge and you find yourself having to prove, prove yourself um, because apart from myself, there's only about another four or five other female artists throughout New Zealand that I know of that are practising and doing tāmoko. Um, but I think it's with the, the help, the courage and the support of, um, like, Uncle Mark as my Hi. tutor and people like Derek Lardelli, um, Tu Dooley, and all their support and encouragement that helps you get through. Kapai. Yeah. So um, has, since finishing your apprentice, have you... Had a lot of work. Have you done facial tamako, arms? You know what? What sort of the, the range that that you have? Yeah, there's. I've done a lot of work, and there's a lot of work out there. Um, I've only done one kowai, which was late last year that I done, and um, that was a challenge. But um, to me, facial moko is probably the ultimate of all moko. Um, but yeah, I do a lot of work and just all your body stuff mainly. What process was giving uh, moko kaiwai? Did you have to wear it out nui? Did you have um, karakia or Basically, it's up to the cl- the recipient, the client, yeah, where they prefer oh, okay. to be and where yeah. they feel comfortable. Most do go to their marae, some just at home out on their deck or, yeah. True, Yeah, true. it's just where the client feels comfortable and where they feel at home and want to be done. Kapai. Yeah. Um, and so you have moko kaiwai. And, and tell me about that journey of, what, of why you decided to get moko kauai, which um, is on the chin. <laughs> I got my kauai done in October, or Labour Week in 2007, and um, just particularly because it was part of my journey as a moko artist. And, um, yeah, and I felt the time was ready, that I was ready to get it, yeah. Kia ora, Johnny Brooking, no Ngāti Purau, Tūwharetua, Rungo Whakata and Mark Kōpua at our website radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. There's additional information about Mark and Tāmoko. And while Justine and I were in Te Tairawhiti last weekend recording the Ahu Whenua Māori Farming Trophy Awards, we visited a stomping ground around Tolaga Bay, Uwawa. We'll be bringing you highlights from that trip in next week's edition of Te Ahika. The Choctaw people are acknowledged universally as the first to use their native language on the battlefield during the First World War. Relaying military manoeuvres in Choctaw enabled an advantage without fear of the enemy intercepting the conversations, which was a tactic Māori and the 28th Māori Battalion would pick up 30 years later in the Second World War. That's just one example of shared indigenous ingenuity, but what of the shared experiences of colonisation? In her academic career, Karina Walters of the Choctaw Nation has focused on that very question, but more precisely whether historical trauma encountered generations beforehand somehow embodies itself within the psyche and physical being of a person and contributes to their unwellness now. Hello, uh, my name's Karina Walters, and I'm from the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. So, Karina, when you were going through university, mm. 
How many other Native Americans were there going through at the same time? Well, I went to the University of California at Los Angeles, and um, this would have been the mid uh, to early 90s. And uh, within the School of Social Work program, there's only two of us. Um, only, And she was a master's student who later became a doctoral student. And um, my colleague, uh, Dr. Tess Evans-Campbell, and myself. And I think throughout the university, maybe there was a half a dozen of us. I mean, it wasn't very big. Yeah. And what about even when you were going through your schooling? Where were you schooled? I went to University UCLA for um, my undergrad as well as my graduate degrees. And um, uh, L.A., Los Angeles, a lot of people might not know, it actually has a very large urban American Indian Alaska Native population. And I got most of my supports uh, through some of the American Indian Studies program there as well as American Indian community elders and and um, aunties and uncles who kind of looked out for me when I was there. So, what was what was motivating you to move through a system that has systematically eroded and destroyed your nation? Mm. Well, I, I would say um, a couple of things. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind when you ask that question is. Um, you know, I feel like I, I, I don't feel I actually have an obligation um, to fulfill some responsibilities um, uh, for my family and for um, our communities. And um, my mom said that doors would open up for me faster than they would for her or my grandfather, and that I had an obligation to keep that door open and pull all of our relatives through. And one way to do that would be through education. And I have to honestly say, I never thought I was going to be, uh, you know, have an advanced degree or anything like that. Um, there were a series of events that happened that uh, pulled me into that. And um, my uh, mentors at, uh, at the university encouraged me to keep going forward at times when I, I didn't even think I was qualified, much less uh, able to do it. And... Um, and, uh, yeah, so I went on and I ended up getting my uh, bachelor's degree after almost being kicked out of university because my grades were so poor. And it took a, a couple of uh, non-Native folks even who said, I still believe in you and I think you can do this. Um, and for me not to pay attention to the old tapes that ran in my head about, you know, not being good enough or, you know, smart enough. Um, and so it was really just persistence and the support of my, my family and the support of um, um, some important uh, mentors uh, within the university system that helped me get through. So the main reason I did it was to, um, at the time, I wanted to be a therapist and work with our communities. And I, I ended up getting my master's in social work degree. And then I became increasingly frustrated because um, the models and the theories and all of that uh, really didn't represent um, it, the reality of our communities. And so it was at that point I, I was encouraged by a number of people to go forward for my doctorate and to look at that, to look at um, the role of identity, the role of family, the role of um, the importance of um, uh, mental health and wellness um, as it relates to um, a positive identity. Uh, and so it was basically because the community you know, said we need someone who can help us do this kind of research and so go to school, get that degree and then come back and, and we can work together So, because yeah. I guess also with um, obligation there's a whole thing around expectation as well mm. isn't there, from, mm. our, from our communities mm. Mm. and how have you been able to balance that out as well um, probably not very well <laughs> I feel like I have to be, you, you, you um, I, I think there's a burden we bear that uh, um, is, a, is a good burden, but it's still a burden at times because uh, we have our family obligations, we have our community obligations, and we have ancestral obligations in the work that we do. And, um, you know, we, I, I think about it even now as as a professor at a university, when I do a project with our with one of our communities, um, one night a group of us were browning buffalo, making buffalo stew, because we were having a big community feed the next day to ask permission 
from the tribal leaders and the community to conduct a study on, on the land. And we had already been given permission from the chief of, of that particular community, but we needed to feed the community. And I thought, boy, I bet there's not a lot of other Native faculty, or non-Native faculty in this country that think about this. at 2 in the morning going to be browning buffalo and cutting potatoes and, you know, uh, sitting with our Native staff and just, you know, laughing and talking and, and getting ready to do a feed. And, and we actually made the food ourselves didn't get it catered because part of our obligation is to continue to feed the community. Um, so those are kind of the layers of responsibilities that we have um, to um, to our community that I think is a different demand than the non-Native communities um, have. What are your research interests? What is it that you've focused on researching over the years? Well, the the bulk of our, our work at um, our institute and, and my work in particular uh, focuses on looking at the impact of historical trauma and intergenerational trauma and discrimination on sure. our health and wellness. Many of our communities define it in different ways, but it's basically the assaults that our uh, communities have endured, and it's a collective assault on the people. It's not, you know, a discriminatory event just for one person, right? But it, it's these massive events that cause major um, change for the people in ways that are not health, healthful or helpful to the people. So an example would be forced relocation from one, one place to another. Um, Which is what a lot of um, nations were subjected to in, in America, mm-hmm. um, separating them from their land yeah. was just another means of eroding and destroying the structures that held that nation together. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, another example would be flooding traditional homelands or uh, dam- putting dams up that you know changes the physical environment and then that interrupts people to... Uh, it interrupts whole communities from being able to fulfill their original instructions uh, as a people. Um, it also involves kind of government-sponsored kind of agendas, uh, such as you know outright genocide, to uh, you know community massacres, which we've endured as well at different points in our history, um, to things like boarding school being forcibly removed from your your community and placed hundreds of miles away into boarding schools. Uh, where the intent was to kill the Indian to save the man, since that was the, the saying back then. And, um, and a lot of our children were brutalized in those boarding schools. Um, that's where we were introduced to physical and sexual abuse in ways that, you know, uh, we had never really encountered. So uh, we've got whole generations that were not parented. They were separated from their traditional values. They were separated from uh, traditional ways of relating to one another, traditional forms of discipline, um, all of these things. And that affects us in in profound ways in terms of our health, our physical health, our spiritual health, our mental health, um, how we even parent our own children from that experience. So, um, So part of the colonization process and historical trauma in particular has been to um, these have these events that separate people from the land, separate, separate people from each other, separate people from their culture, separate people from their spirituality, um, and and hopefully, you know, part of it is is to get people to internalize that as as okay, and. Um, but the good news is part of our research and our work has been on focusing on despite these big historically traumatic events, our communities have thrived, we've survived, and we've done well. So how do we build our programs and how do we rebuild family and how do we regenerate um, wellness from our ancestral understandings of that and, and that there are elements of these processes that still stay with us? So how do you account for that resilience? How is it that, that some mm. nations were okay? Mm. Well, not really, mm. but, you know, how, how do you account for that resilience? I mean, mm. is there any, any recognisable reason why some... Why do some people do well and others yeah. don't do as well? Um, I think there's a number of reasons why we can say why someone doesn't do as well. I mean, one of the things that has to do with it, if, if communities have so many traumatic events that happen so quickly and you aren't able to invoke 
your own traditional ceremonies or your own ways of resolving those conflicts or having a grieving cycle or any of those, um, it makes it harder and harder to um, remain stable as a community or to grow as a community because you're in crisis mode. And some of our communities have had to be in crisis mode because of these external events that happen. Um, but yet there are still people within those crises that come through. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen anecdotally, but also our communities have talked about, um, that's helped them is, is their spirituality, uh, their ceremony, their connection to family. Um, and knowing that, you know, we've, we've had crises before in our, our cultures. You know, we know how to deal with major events. Uh, we have ceremonies for dealing with major events. I think what the challenge is, is how do we deal with the everyday discrimination that we encounter? Because that wears on us in ways that we don't recognize. Mm-hmm. And so some of our work has been looking at how do we begin to embody, literally, physically, uh, these traumas, these discriminations uh, that we experience. How, how is it related to cardiovascular disease, diabetes? How is it related to... Um, you know, how, how did the, our interruption in being able to do uh, traditional harvesting or traditional food or um, how has that interrupted our ability to eat healthfully now, you know? Um, because so, here, yeah. of, there's, um, here in Aotearoa, there are always connections made between um, the change in diet for Māori yeah. and the increase in diabetes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, but you know, it's always it's always the negative stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. And it's always like, yeah. You know, if you just controlled yourself a little bit, the brown girl. Right, right, <laughs> <laughs> right. You would not have diabetes. Well, you know, again, that's like that's looking at the end, uh, like taking an individualistic approach, which doesn't make sense, right? I mean, it, we really to understand any of our health behaviors, even if it's you know poor health behaviors, you have to we have to look at. How does that fit in terms of uh, a traumatic experience? So let me give you an example. Um, you know, you know, I've been talking. We've been talking with some communities because we're starting to do some cardiovascular disease prevention projects, and that's actually one of the first things that the elders will say, which is, "Don't come in here and tell us our babies are fat because you're using the skinny white girl model, and that's not going to work. Our people have never. Our, we don't have bodies like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, that might be true." But it also might be true that there's something still not healthful about the eating. So, uh, so you have to dig a little deeper and look at the context and you say, okay, tell me about your traditional relationship to food and food activity. What did that look like? What were your people's original instructions? And then you might hear the story about you know, how the berries are picked and how the people harvested. And then you say, well, at what point did that get interrupted? Tell me the story about that. Then you hear the story about how the community was removed and put into a place where they didn't have access to that anymore. And then they were given commodity foods for their diet that they had become dependent on. Otherwise, they started to starve. And then you hear the story that people did starve. And you say, well, what did you do to protect your babies? And they say, well, we gave them more food and we made sure they were plump. And then the light bulb goes off, right? It's no longer about an individual pathological condition. It becomes uh, understanding a health behavior that was born out of surviving a colonial trauma experience. And once you understand that, and you, we don't, we're in a deficit-oriented approach when we're focusing on, gee, that was a good decision your grandma's made to help protect those babies. But now let's look to honor their decision. Let's look right now, is that still working for this generation? Is there really a need to carry on doing that? Right. Eh? Right. And then, so is that taking, tell me if I get this wrong, is that understanding those, what, understanding a behaviour that occurred then and that seeing that it doesn't necessarily fit in a contemporary context? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and then it, yeah. adjusting that behavior mm-hmm. in the contemporary scene. Right. And it's hard to do because sometimes those, uh, those behaviors that were uh, born out of a colonial trauma response, right, it was a survival mechanism that our you know, grandparents did, that sometimes starts to be called culture. Okay. It's tra- or it's traditional. It's traditional. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's starting to learn how to unpack some of that so that 
because otherwise people think you're attacking a tradition, and you're not. You're honoring the original instructions. What you're asking people to do is to look back and say, how did people respond to that trauma experience? And then, then you can start unpacking what was tradition and what was uh, what was tradition about what that example I just gave you was the food goes to the children first because we need the, the children to survive. That was traditional. The choice to uh, do that was traditional, but um, it wasn't traditional to do that uh, because it was, I mean, it was a crisis situation that it was born out of. So, so traditions were evoked to survive a crisis situation. This generation, we could say, let's look at that. Does that work for us? If we, if we do a different choice now, it doesn't mean we're dishonoring the choice of our grandparents, but rather we're honoring and we now acknowledge why they did what they needed to do. Now we need to think, does it work now? Another example is my grandfather, for example, you know, he, he knew Choctaw. You know, he made a choice not to continue that with his children when they relocated from Oklahoma to California. And he thought he was doing something that was protective for his children because they're in a new setting. I'm now in the generation where I'm, I've had a loss because of that. But now I could do something about it. I don't say, oh, Grandpa was a sellout. <laughs> you know? You know, I could say, Grandpa's an Uncle Tomahawk. I, I, I say, oh, Grandpa, you know, Grandpa did what he thought was best in that generation. And I can honor that by still saying, at this moment, for this generation, we need to start learning that language because in that language are our, you know, our worldview, our values, and all of these other things that we need to bring back up to the forefront. But that's you, remo- you removing the judgment from it, eh? Mm-hmm. Mm. Exactly. Which, uh, and, and the individualized behavior. Mm. So the idea isn't that, you know, you're just, you're just, you know, what's wrong with you? You're not doing your, you know, 30 minutes of exercise today, you know, and you say, well, gee, let's look at the whole picture here. I've got to pick up the kids. I got to quickly run home and do this, that. No, I didn't get my 30 minutes in. So there's, there's always that context that has to be put in place. So we aren't blaming our community or blaming anybody, but really um, uh, rethinking deeply how we want to live according to the original instructions that were provided to our our family, our tribe, our iwi, our hapu, you know. So, Karina, have you found that you've had to create a whole other language? <laughs> it doesn't sound like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a lot of Indigenous scholars are in the process of doing that because uh, the the language of the Western world uh, doesn't really work for it. Um, and um, and I, you know, I just want to say that. I mean, I feel like I'm not really inventing anything. It's more like um, having an opportunity or uh, really a, a blessing to be able to be the vessel um, through which these community stories emerge because really if the community knows these stories and sometimes or we, we already have the solutions we just need to learn to trust that more and build on that more I think part of colonization is to make us think uh, is to become dependent on, on someone else defining for us um, what we should do and how we should do it instead of us looking inward saying, well, what did, what did our ancestors do? They made some important decisions here. And, um, and what worked for them and what might work better for this generation? Well, here's the million-dollar question. How is it a series of steps that allow communities to recover from historical trauma? Hmm. And, it's, and, and it's, it's such a huge thing. Can it yeah. even occur in one generation? Oh yeah, no. I, I think it's. Um, I think as long as we're living under colonial conditions, we will always have to be decolonizing. Um, so I don't think there's like the ten steps, <laughs> the ten step method to decolonization out there. <laughs> yeah, when you reach the you're <laughs> when you're, decolonized. You're decolonized. Congratulations, you just Yeah, I mean, I think it's on multiple levels, from societal to family, uh, institutional. I mean, we have a lot of decolonizing work to do. Uh, but it's about taking those first steps and and continuing to to work through some things. And I think it, we're challenged by the fact that some things can't be undone. And there's um, there. What would be an example? Um, I think you know you can't undo the fact that you know we're now only two uh, percent of the population. <laughs> you know we've we've you know we've died through massive epidemics and and genocide, um, but. We are also one of the fastest-growing groups in the country back in the United States. Um, so, yeah, we can keep birthing and try to repopulate. Um, 
but we shouldn't restrict ourselves to thinking we have to live in the exact systems that are defined for us right now, but that we have opportunities to imagine ourselves differently and, and begin to take action on that in ways that are going to be beneficial to the people. And um, so, no, I don't think there's a decolonization 10-step method, but I think it begins with decolonizing our minds, decolonizing our spirits, uh, reasserting our boundaries. I mean, I think um, uh, reasserting our interdependence with each other and our responsibility to one another and our family, re rekindling, rebuilding those uh, uh, family relationships. Um, and also undoing the lateral oppression we do to each other, right? Cause what do you mean by that? Well, part of colonization is to get communities to have divide-and-conquer processes. So uh, we internalize um, these certain messages that the, the colonizers would like us to have, which is, you know, this person um, is more, you know, more brilliant than the other person or... You know, or we might play it out in different kinds of ways. For example, in the United States, we have a blood quantum policy that, you know, Native people carrying around cards that say how much certificate degree of Indian blood we have, for example. Now, that was a policy that was enforced on our people. Um, and, you know, part of the unintended consequences of that over the long term, over generations, has been that our own people have internalized some of that. So we get into these arguments about how Indian you are, you're more Indian than I am, and, you know, um, who's authentic and who's not. And, um, and, uh, and those kinds of conversations, although at the, at the core of it, it makes sense to say, you know, who do we want to be? As Choctaw, who do we want to be um, as an indigenous uh, uh, tribe? You know, those are legitimate questions that any tribe needs to pose to itself, always reflecting on. But how these get played out in everyday interactions can be very hurtful to one another, and basically it only serves to break us apart. It doesn't really move us forward. So those are the kind of uh, things that we could critically self-reflect on and say, well, wait a minute, you know, who's defining this for us? We need to define for ourselves how we want to be understood as a nation, as a, as a sovereign nation, you know. Hard job, though, eh? Yeah. <laughs> For someone who's, you know, got five kids, yep. earning no money, yep. crisis mode every day. That's right. I mean, what, what, how can they mm -hmm. become free? How can they be liberated? Mm. And again, I would say it can't be on the individual level, right? It has to go back to the collective. So uh, ending violence in our communities. Uh, we have incredibly high rates of violence, incredibly high rates of health problems. So beginning with the family, even with your own individual self, but it's it's got to be seen as a, a bigger issue. It's got to be a collective response, a community commitment, a FANO commitment to um, change. And taking action for that change, for the health and wellness, not just of this generation, but, you know, uh, the Haudenosaunee say, hey, you've got to be thinking seven generations ahead to everything you do. Because in this moment, I am my granddaughter's ancestor, and in this moment, I am my ancestor's granddaughter. So I have a responsibility to both directions. Um, so the healing begins with me. So tell me about the Choctaw Nation. Mm. Uh, well, let's see, um, what do you want to know? <laughs> We're in Oklahoma. So what, what are your characteristics? Mm. Um, how, you know, the population, how have you as a member of your nation mm. tried to, tried to um, use what you've just been talking about? Yeah. Well, I feel, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, so I wasn't born in our traditional territory. And, um, but even having said that, I feel um, it's very important for me to conduct myself well in this world because I'm still a Choctaw woman walking around. And I feel an obligation to make sure I give back. And I've, I'm actually thinking about what can I do to give back directly to, to our, our community and our, our people. So I'm starting to make some of the links with back home on that. Um, but we were, um, we have several different origin stories, but one that I think would interest um, Aotearoa is that uh, Chata is actually the name of a brother. You know, unlike other native tribes in North America whose name that they have for themselves, like Dene, which would mean like the people, Chata is the name of a brother. And Chata and Chicksaw were brothers. Chicksaw is another tribe. And um, 
they made a decision to take their, their people, their clans, away from a very bad situation. This was a long time ago. I assume it was like a war kind of situation. And because our ancestors are so important to us, and um, we literally packed up all of our ancestors' bones, mm -hmm. and every man, woman, and child carried the bones of their ancestors on their backs, and we went on this long journey. And the priest every day had a pole, and he walked with this big staff, and every day he put the pole down, and the way the pole leaned was the way we walked. And so for many, many years we walked until we ended up in um, this area um, called Nanawaya in Mississippi, and that means the Leaning Mound. And that was where the pole um, signaled that we were to stay. And so we made our home um, uh, in Mississippi and parts of Alabama and Louisiana. Later on, we spread out a little bit. And um, yeah, so that's, that's one of our origin stories. And the other is that we actually came out of the earth. We came out of the, we crawled out of the ground, uh, out of the mud. Um, and the um, other tribes, the Cherokee and the Seminole and the uh, Chickasaw and the Creeks, came out before us, and we were the last ones to come out. And then each went their separate directions, um, populating parts of the southeast. And um, so we're a southeastern people. We're um, partly woodland, uh, forest, forest dwelling people. We uh, river people because we have the Mississippi, the big river, and Bocchito, uh, big river. And um, we have, um, and we're also kind of swamp people, you know, so we have um, traditionally, we come from, you know, there's panthers, there used to be panthers out there and alligators and, you know, that kind of living. And we're agricultural, uh, we're people of the corn. Um, we have corn maiden stories. We used to have uh, green corn ceremonial cycles. Um, we had stomp dance where we would, uh, the women were, would wear um, turtle rattles on their legs and we would dance all night long, uh, these sacred dances. Um, uh, some of our community members are still practicing this time. And, um, but that's a little, it's a little harder. We, don't, we are not part of the formal green corn ceremonial cycle anymore. We aren't doing that in Oklahoma, but I know that there's movement um, to resurrect that um, in Mississippi as well as Oklahoma, and Mississippi might be doing it more than, than we are the Mississippi Band of Choctaws. We were relocated in um, 1830, um, 1830, 31, and 32. We had separate waves of being relocated where the government forced us. Uh, through, we signed a treaty called the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek, and I'm actually one of the descendants of some of the signatories of that, unfortunately. Uh, one of my great-grandmas was one of the... Um, she was Choctaw, and she was one of the interpreters on it. They... They ceded our lands um, east of the Mississippi in exchange for Indian Territory lands, which is now the state of Oklahoma. And we were promised that we would be, you know, left to be there as long as we want, as long as the rivers flow and the, the grass grows. Our people fought it. We didn't want to move. Um, but I think, again, we have to look back. Why did our ancestors make those decisions? And I think they saw that people would die if we didn't do that. And so they went ahead and made that decision to, to leave our homeland uh, pretty forcibly, though. I mean, our hands were forced. Um, and we were marched, and um, we were supposed to leave in fall, but a lot of people left during wintertime uh, with very limited rations. And because of that, we were decimated on the trail, and, and people died. And there's, there's major stories about that. Um, one of my great-great-grandmas made it, Indian Territory, and she died the day she arrived. So, so um, I've been told, and I don't know how true this is, but families were given only one blanket to share uh, in that winter winter walk. And it, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of miles for these families and um, with small children. So we lost a lot of our young people, and we lost a lot of our old people on that road. The good news is that after we resettled in the Indian Territory, um, we had a cultural renaissance, and we were left alone for a long time. And uh, then the Civil War broke out, and the Choctaws made a decision to um, side with the side with the, the side of the Confederates um, against the Union. And so they fought. They agreed with the South, and it wasn't because they were pro or for or against slavery or anything like that. But it's because um, they were concerned about the long-term effects of 
uh, th this United States, <laughs> and it would have been to our advantage to not have a United States in that way. And because that didn't happen that way, um, we had another set of uh, negotiations and treaties uh, that also further diminished some of our, our control because because uh, we sided with the South. But uh, at the turn of the century, um, they decided to allot our lands out um, for white settlement, and so we kept some of our lands and we were given individual allotments, again, trying to remove us from being a collective people. And um, and that's when the Oklahoma land rush happened in, uh, in like 1906, I believe it was. I might have my date not exactly right, but right around that period. And so a lot of uh, our relatives lost their land during that period um, for uh, a number of reasons, because it was no longer held in family. It was, you know, held as an individual ownership issue. And um, we... Um, had to reconstitute ourselves as a, a certain kind of um, tribal government to remain recognized by the United States, and we did, and created a different constitution, and um, and we've you know since have survived. So. So this is the resilience. Yes. Is it constant thread of yeah. survival, no matter what yeah. has been thrown, yeah. even though there's obviously the historical trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's, you know, no matter what, we're still here. Absolutely. Still here. Yeah. And we and we would fight to be here because we're again thinking those seven generations ahead, right? <laughs> so what happens? The decisions that, you know, I think about, you know, wh what were we doing seven generations ago? What were my what was my grandma and my grandpa doing seven generations ago? And you think about it, you know, so much happens in seven generations, and mm. um, that would have been pre-removal, right? You know. Um, and what were they doing? You know, you asked me about education at the beginning of the interview. I could tell you one of my great great uncles, uh, Mushlatabi, was a chief of our, our nation, one of the principal chiefs, anyways. And he made a decision that that our people should learn about education, learn about the white man's education, not because we should be like the white man, but so that we could better do treaty negotiations. Uh, but that ended up backfiring because the missionaries came in and and instead started indoctrinating our people to think less of themselves and and to actually totally change their understanding of their relationship with one another and their relationship to the land and to the people. And, uh, and a couple generations later, he was, he, I mean, years later, he started, I, I think, regretting <laughs> that decision. <laughs> but making the best decision for the time on a collective basis, eh? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways I feel like I'm still trying to honor Mashallah Tabi's vision, which was, you know, as we learn and we get um, a, a Western education, you know, two things. One is never lose sight of our traditional education, our wise elders and knowledge that we already have, and recognize that we've already been scientists. You know, we've already been healers and doctors. We we have medicines. We, it's we it's legitimate. You know, we we had sophisticated road builders. We were sophisticated. Um, we built pyramids. We had an uh, agricultural cropping system that you know white people still like to use. So, you know, we we did all of this. We knew about the stars and. Yeah. So, to, so when I thought about my education and I look back and I realize that what got me through all of that was really realizing that, you know, believing in the fact that we already have this knowledge, that this isn't something that uh, part of decolonizing is to not think that knowledge belongs to white people, but that, um, that we too have had mathematics, we too have had different types of science, and, you know, now it's we can build on it. Absolutely. Sophisticated no, stuff. No, the difference is that, you know, some of these folks are just, they just steal it and they give it yeah. a different name. I mean, yeah. you think about, um, you know, the sophisticated cropping systems that, that uh, folks have done, or the number zero. It was invented, you know, for example, the Maya had it, you know, uh, but no one paid attention to that. So we've, we certainly uh, were very sophisticated. Um, and the, the, the issue is part of our decolonizing work in education is teaching our, our native young people that, you know, some of this has actually been labeled as Pakia, when in fact it's actually indigenous, and we need to look at that. And what you're doing is teaching value, mm. Eh? Mm. It's the value of it. Yeah. Because if you've constantly been 
um, as we all have been, subjected to all the negativity yeah. of you're not good enough, yeah. you're dumb, yeah. you're blah, blah, you're blah, mm. blah. You know, when you're starting to see this over here, it's like, oh, I'm not so dumb. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, no, I'm not so yeah. stupid. No. <laughs> you know, our old Despite what they've told what us. Was, our old people knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and now it's time to, to uh, reclaim our science and to um, find a new way of relating to these tools. So I think what the challenge is for these young people is a lot of them think that um, they're selling out or, you know, they're becoming like Whitey if, if they are learning uh, these, t- these educational tools. And one of the first things I say is you've got to remember that these are just tools. Our ancestors have always, you know, used tools. Like if someone, if, a, if an outsider came into the community and said, even if it was another native person from another tribe, if they came and they brought a gift that could help our people, we'd say, thank you, brother. We'll use that because uh, it's on our terms, right? But if they brought something we, that was something that we couldn't use, we'd say, you know, well, thanks, but no thanks. We know we don't need that. That's how we should approach all of this Western knowledge. There's tools there that can help our people, but it has to be on our terms. Kia ora, kia ora koutou. Ko mā kōpua hau no, uh, no te aitanga hauiti, no Ngāti Ira, me Ngāti Parau o te tai rāpiti. Um, uh, because Moko came from Rorohenga. But what it actually means, it might sound like when you translate it, it means pursue the, the works or the behavior of Rorohenga. But when you look at the story that it comes from, what it actually means is be good. It doesn't mean anything else but be good. Be good. Be good to one another, be good to yourself, be good to, you know, whoever's around you. Um, and that's what that, that uh, whakatauki means. Um, when I look at people who are coming to me and with the consideration of getting their patients done, um, I want to look at their life and see whether they've been good. Um, and it's simple. And it's simple. It's the most enduring piece of criteria that you, that you <laughs> Have you been good? No. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, all these things uh, that you hear about, oh, I thought you had to earn it. Well, if you're being good, then you've earned it. If you're being Māori, then you've earned it. If you're following the track of the 99.9% of moko, then you've earned the right to to wear what you wear. You don't earn the right to be the chief if you're not the chief, so only the mm. chief wears what the chief wears, that sort of that kind of thing. Um, and because you've got a moko on your face, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're the chief. Yes. It just necessarily means that you are you and you're a chief in what you do. And we're right in the middle of Matariki, the Māori New Year. The Wairau community celebrates Matariki by hosting the Wairau Film Festival. Te Ahikā will have highlights from that in next week's programme. He mihi kia mā kōpua rāua ko Johnny Brooking. Kia te manuhiri tuarangi a Karina Walters no te iwi choktō. He mihi kia koe e hoa. Hoki mai anō ki te hōtaka nei a te ahikā iwi mā, ko marai rakraku tēnei, mauri ora tātou katoa.